0: I'm Samuel Forsyth, and you're listening to Trail Voices. everyone. This is Sam, and I'm speaking to you from my apartment in Boulder, where I have 600 whole square feet to roam. I've been working on part two of the Sinitas episode, but that episode won't be around for a while yet. In the meantime, I'd like to add some content while we're all going through this time of crisis together. We are physically separated, but connected more than ever through various internet channels. Outdoor literature is something I've always enjoyed, So I'd like to share a couple episodes focused on that. Over the next episode or two, myself and some friends will share some of our favorite pieces, and I'll play some audible clips from books as well. The first piece I'd like to share with you is about Rocky Mountain National Park. It's written by the man many consider to be its founder, Enos Mills. As you know, Rocky Mountain National Park is closed at this time due to the COVID-19 pandemic. While Mills often argued the benefits of nature for health, we have to acknowledge the impact on our mountain towns. The park closed Friday, March 20th, not long after Estes Park Mayor Todd Jursa urged the Department of Interior to do so. He wrote, We have an older high-risk population with many retirees and limited critical resources. Some of our businesses are closing and others are on restrictions to comply with the public health orders medical emergency services as well as basic supplies like groceries must be available to meet the needs of our community at this time. I think it helps to understand the median age in Estes is 58. For perspective, the median age in Denver is 34. When I worked at Rocky Mountain National Park, I worked with many volunteers in their 60s, 70s, and even some in their 80s. The appreciation of nature And the park in that community is so strong. Right now, we can comfort ourselves by knowing how peaceful the park is for its natural inhabitants. The park is resting. Absent of the automobiles, the hikers, the forest must be truly serene. The park is taking a little breather, socially distancing from all of us for just a little bit. Enos Mills wrote books such as Wildlife on the Rockies, and Spell of the Rockies. But this piece he wrote especially for the United States Railroad Administration. I'm holding a physical copy, published in 1925 after his death in 1922. The Rocky Mountain National Park is a marvelous grouping of gentleness and grandeur, an eloquent, wordless hymn sung in silent, poetic pictures. A wilderness mountain world of groves and grass plots, crags and canyons, rounded lakes with shadow-matted shores that rest in peace within the purple forest. There are wildflowers of every color, and many a silken meadow edged with ferns. Brokenness and beauty, terrace upon terrace, a magnificent, hanging wild garden. Over these terraces, waters rush and pour. From ice-sculptured snow-piled peaks, young and eager streams leap in white cascades between crowding cliffs and pines. Through this wildness winds the trail, with its secrets of the centuries, where adventures come and go and where the magic campfire blossoms in the night. In these primeval scenes, the grizzly bear gives to the wilderness its master spell. The mountain ram poses on the cliff. The laughing, varied voice of the coyote echoes when the afterglow falls. The home-loving beaver builds his willow-fringed hut. The birds sing. The cheerful chipmunk frolics and never grows up. And here, the world stays young. The Rocky Mountain National Park holds adventure for every visitor. In it, the world is new and wild, and on the imagination it produces the explorer's stirring joys. Its mile-high, unfenced scenes give freedom, splendid landscapes of the ideal world. Here for everyone are health and hope, efficiency and joy. Strong is the friendliness of nature. With it everyone has a place in the sun. Her privileges are for each and for all. Nature is universal and here the stranger makes intimate acquaintances. Prejudice ceases. Each is at his best. In this greatest wilderness meeting place, the East and West understand and become friends. Travel unites people. Into this park through the years will pour a continuous procession of peoples to mingle and form an international conference of friends. Here flags of nations and national boundary lines are forgotten. Kinship is the spirit of nature. If you're interested in reading more from Enos Mills, you'll find some free or very cheap ebooks out there. A small sampling of his writing and photography can be found in Rocky Mountain National Park, A 100-Year Perspective by T.A. Barron, John Fielder, and Enos Mills. It's an oversized hardback with many beautiful photos taken by Fielder and some black and whites taken by Mills. It's a great coffee table book that will surely inspire you to have some outdoor adventure. Last week I shared some Instagram stories calling out for people's favorite outdoor literature. Jeremy Hendricks and I shared a couple passages from our favorite books and uh, we got, we got together last night on zoom and first I had to ask him just how he's been holding up.
1: It's been a bit, uh, a little odd. I think I was maybe a little, um, maybe ahead of the curve in terms of just sort of the emotional preparedness for it in some ways. Um, just uh was kind of getting um, early early indications of sort of like maybe what we're gonna be up against so, um,
0: how are you um what are you how are you managing it like because you guys shut down the retail shop where you work right
1: yeah we shut down uh, f- uh, our last day of business was Friday and yeah my role is 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 pretty much exclusively revolves around the operations of, of the the retail store. Um, so that channel is, 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 my responsibility. So, uh, it's gone from 100 to zero at this point. So, um, so we'll, we'll see, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, continue to do some operational things that, um, but largely my role there is, um, is pretty much on, on pause.
0: Yeah. So how are you managing that now? Like how do you, how do you manage your life right now?
1: Uh, I don't manage my life right now, I guess. It's just, um, I've got a good routine. I mean, I'm getting decent amount of sleep, been doing at home workouts, um, which seems to be all the, all the buzz lately, but, um, I've got a personal trainer and a strength coach. And so I still commit to my, um, my workouts and then, uh, you know, just trying to, um, kind of step up in, in a lot of ways that I think people are seeing a need for right now too, which is just communication and compassion and, and trying to be creative with, with how to support local and, um, and even if it's not local, support people who maybe have, you know, careers that are contingent on the service industry, et cetera. So it's kind of using my, using my bandwidth to sort of stay connected and uh, help out where I can.
0: That's awesome. Well, yeah, I think in with this extra time, uh, finding creative outlets, people are, uh, I just see so many different things happening right now. People are updating more videos of what they're doing. And some people are getting really artsy and craftsy and yeah. And also look up some, uh, reading. So yeah, I really want to get into the readings. Yeah, so I've been looking at a few different books that I kind of wanted to bring up that in the past couple years, I really enjoyed. Couple of them are Appalachian Trail books. This one, um, a wall on the Appalachian Trail about this guy David Miller. It's his like memoir. Uh, he went a wall from his job basically. That's why it's called a wall on the Appalachian Trail, and a wall turned out to be his trail name. So this is David Miller on the very beginning of the Appalachian Trail, and he's already like having some knee pain, and he's already questioning you know, was this smart to do this? Am I going to have to call my family and be like, Hey, actually I can't really do this whole hike because it's like yeah. 2,200 miles long. And I think he's like at mile three and he's already got knee pain and stuff.
1: Sounds like every hundred miler of mine.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. On the way up blood mountain, there are many people strolling along without packs. Teens in sketchers and jeans give me curious looks. I'm sure when I get out of earshot, they ask each other, "Why is that dumbass carrying a backpack?" An old civilian conservation Corps stone building on the summit still serves as a shelter. The smell of marijuana and sounds of a foreign language, the smell of marijuana and sounds of a foreign language emanate from the shelter. The building is occupied by a handful of young Europeans in Goth attire with more piercings than I can count. A number of trails radiate from the hut. Most of the trails only go as far as needed to relieve oneself in relative privacy. Others lead to views. I guess that the trail going most steeply downward is the AT headed north. More teens are coming up the trail. Seeking confirmation and chancing ridicule, I ask, Is this the AT? I don't know, one replies. What's the AT? These interactions have me feeling awkward. The steep, rocky descent makes matters worse. I feel a jolt of pain down the outside of my right knee. I struggle where carefree day hikers buzz up and down this trail that they can't even identify. One of the drug-addled Europeans passes me, jogging in Doc Martens. I desperately want to be off this mountain.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> oh, man, it reminds, me of, uh, <laughs> reminds me of going up and down Camelback Mountain in uh, in Phoenix as well (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty great yeah it reminds me of that that ultra meme one where uh not not they count ultra money but the like whatever the trail running one was where the it's like um the guy's perspective he's like listen you know hey hey guy with the like backpack and trekking poles and and compression socks and and shoes, like my my six-year-old daughter with a Barbie is doing this hill or right. something.
0: Like right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it kind of sort of reminds me of going up Flagstaff mountain cause you'll be heading up the trail and then you'll just come across this group of like oh, totally smoking weed or something.
1: Yeah. If you go up, um, like view, you take like viewpoint and you go that direction and you get up there too. <laughs> like when you get up to the parking lot up there. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's exactly. what So yeah, that's a wall on the Appalachian trail but it's a lot of more just like mundane trail stuff, but it's more like kind of a funny account of his daily existence.
1: Yeah. It's got, it seems like it has like a real, like methodical cadence to the like delivery too. It does. Yeah, Which I'm sure that is necessary for something like the AT.
0: So have you read North by Scott and Jenny Jurek?
1: Uh, I did. Yeah. Did you have it on audio?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I really enjoyed it. Did you have it on audio?
1: No, no. I read the book. Who, who narrates it?
0: It's Jenny and Scott.
1: Oh, they narrate it?
0: Yeah. For the listener, North chronicles Scott Jurek's Appalachian Trail FKT attempt. FKT being fastest known time. Scott decides to go northbound from Springer Mountain in Georgia to end on Mount Katahdin in Maine. The story is written from the perspective of both Scott and Jenny. There's a certain down-to-earth quality in the writing, and you'll feel like you're taken with them on the trek. Having two voices makes the book unique and well-balanced. There is a cast of interesting characters that come help, and Speedgoat Carl Meltzer is one. Here's a short, audible clip from Jenny's perspective.
3: I found the Speedgoat's quirks endearing. He was like an old man set in his ways. I think when you race ultramarathons or attempt something like the AT, there are so many things out of your control that the few things in your life you can control, you want to master. For Jerker, it was his diet. That was the one thing he liked to have complete control over. And out here, he handed the reins to me, which was no small task. I dropped Speedgoat off at Pinefield Gap so he could run with Jerker that evening. He pulled on his waist belt and slid two beer cans into the water bottle holders. Legendary. I saw three black bears in the direction they were running, and I'd seen three more by the time I drove to the final meeting spot of the day. I had asked Speedgoat if he was worried about bears in this notoriously bear-filled section, and he said, Nope, I just put on my headphones and turned the music up louder. Churker was in good hands. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah that's great
0: yeah speed goat was definitely one of the favorite characters
1: oh totally i yeah I, and i would i think it would be such a do something with him
0: yeah totally i actually think of him fairly often lately because i've been running with this little um waist pack it's like kind of one of those stretchy waist packs that holds things pretty tight to your body. Yeah. But the back pocket is not really super tight like that. So um, sometimes something will be in my back pocket and it's just kind of bouncing around. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard his story about the first um, ultra he did. It was like the Wasatch 100 or something, I think. Um, But he said he had six rock hard power bars just like bouncing up and down in a fanny pack. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that visual, I always think of that.
1: Which is like, I mean, those things are miserable to eat when it's at all cold. I mean, they're just impossible to eat. So, yeah. Uh,
0: Yeah. Awesome. That part always cracks me up. I just can't imagine them bouncing around in a fanny pack when you're trying to run. (laughs) And I think he didn't even eat any of them.
1: Yeah, likely not.
0: (laughs) He found it was too hard to chew them. You have to have like a bite in your mouth for five minutes before it kind of melts. (laughs)
1: I remember trying to eat those on like Iron Man training rides and stuff. Oh, it was like impossible. We used yeah. to like, we used to like take them and uh, tear off. Like if you could, you like tear off like a third of it and just stick it to the top of your top tube on your bike while you're road. So you lift, live- I'm like stuck to the top of your top tube, so whenever you need it, you didn't have to mess with a wrapper. You literally just peeled it off your top tube, and then like, wow, had to like choke it down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow,
1: well, cool. Do you want to, uh, did you want me yeah. to? Yeah,
0: yeah. Tell me. Yeah, tell me about your book.
1: So my book is uh, um, one of my favorites. Was uh, the last man on the mountain? Um, it's the death of an American adventurer on K two. And it was written, I think, in like uh, tw- 2011, I believe. If I can look it up, but yeah, it was two thousand and eleven by uh, author Jennifer Jordan. And I I struggle with um, being able to focus while reading books, um,
0: but yeah, same this one
1: this one was a particular favorite of mine. It just just the way that it was written. It it uh, it was able to keep me um hungry um chapter after chapter so um because it kind of would duck into the um sort of assumed or perceived travels um of this uh, of the summit and um and then drop into sort of like some of the facts about the area um so it was kind of like sort of fractured in a way that kept my mind like having like to kind of bounce around a lot between different um characters and times mm. and that kind of thing
0: yeah right
1: it was an enjoyable read <clears throat> but yeah i mean i was i was sort of fascinated with the uh, with k2 and and sort of these early alpine summits um and this one's um based on the, the uh, dudley wolf expedition in 1939 and it's written the author has a direct connection to the story um, because they were the ones who found uh, Dudley wolf's remains it's a pretty amazing story from the perspective of the author but also sort of recounting as much of the story as they possibly could help you understand how they got to that point and how they connected the, t- the dots to that that connection it's pretty read before each chapter to do this quote um, to sort of like set the tempo for each chapter. And So the first one that, that really called out to me was um, in chapter five. The title of that chapter is called The Getting There. There's a quote by Charles S. Houston from his K2 diary um, in 1938. And it reads, Is it not better to take risks than die within from rot? is it not better to change one's life completely than to wait for the brain to set firmly and irreversibly in one way of life and one environment i think it is taking risks not for the sake of danger alone but for the sake of growth is more important than any security one can buy or inherit wow. so that's that
0: i agree those are those powerful powerful pieces like cuz we get in like a really comfortable life and it's taking that risk that makes life so much more worth living
1: agreed yeah and without them what you know what have you what have you done to sort of challenge yourself and risk can be anything right what might feel risky to one person is is normal to another but so we we all have our own self-defined risks and that's, that's what's kind of also really universally compelling about that it doesn't have to be these you know, epic, iconic, sort of you know, big challenges. Sometimes, sometimes it's just like telling somebody you're sorry, or or like walking to work instead of driving, or or you know, just just sort of exploring a new food or whatever. So, danger doesn't necessarily have to be a part of that element, but it certainly heightens it. But yeah, I have a, I have a, a quick. It's not actually quick. It's, it's one, two. It's only two pages of a section in the book that I wanted to read.
0: Yes, I would love to hear.
1: <clears throat> As the men ticked off the last of their 330 miles, they realized that except for the expected tired bones and fleas, they have traveled well. And finally, on May 30th, the team rounded the last bend at the end of the Baltoro Glacier and looked left. There she stood, K2. Still another 10 miles down the Godwin-Austin Glacier, 28,250 feet rising out of the earth like a pyramid out of the desert, alone, majestic, and utterly in command of the lower peaks and glaciers at her feet. Nearly 1,000 square miles of rock, ice, snow, avalanche gullies, hanging glaciers, crevices, crevasses, and constant wind. K2 sat before them as terrifying and spectacular as anything they had ever were seen. The men stood looking at the mountain as many explorers had before them in silence as its power reverberated through their bellies. When they would speak it was hushed phrases. Christ look at it and it's unbelievable. A few of the men later admitted to thinking what the hell am I doing here imagining I can climb that. Even the sight of it terrifies me. In his journal George George wrote almost callously what he thought were uh, what excuse me in his journal George wrote almost callously what he thought they were in for quote a trip like this I believe changes boys to men they either come through or they don't and if they don't it is too damn bad but if they do they'll be men we shall see end quote on their last day of the trek the lack of glacier goggles became a critical issue as one porter, after another, fell to the snow holding his eyes and moaning in pain. Snow blindness occurs when the cornea and conjunctive, conjunctiva are burned by prolonged exposure to reflective light off the ice and snow. Like the severe sunburn it is, snow blindness inflames the eyes, can even swell them shut, and feels as if acid were being poured into them. The only cure is to cover the eyes completely, protecting them from all light with cool, damp cloth while waiting for the inflammation and pain to subside. The porters sat on rocks, refusing to move each other, m- refusing to move um, another inch without glasses. With Fritz, Tony, and Chap far ahead, Jack George and Jesus set about calling some makeshift eye protection for them all. And that's it.
0: Wow, it's graphic.
1: Yeah, just really like the part where, you know, you sort of like, I mean, we've all been there. You've you probably looked up at something and be like, oh, it's not that bad, right? Yeah. And then get, get to the base of it or even a quarter of the way there. I mean, just it's humbling to me to see these recollections of people just, but there's portions of the book where they're talking about how absolutely close. They got to the summit in, in measures of feet and just not being able to, to get to certain sections. Like <laughs> just can't imagine like being that, um, ex- you know, that exhausted or gassed mm-hmm. and just not actually able to yeah. like inch forward, you know?
0: Yeah. And in that environment, in that place where, um, helps not really coming.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah, exactly. Summit fever.
0: Yeah. In what, in what year did they go up and do that?
1: 39, 1939.
0: Wow. Yeah. So they're not calling helicopters for rescue.
1: No, this was. They literally were uh, nailing like hobnails and stuff into their, into their like leather soled boots. The equipment was uh, at the time, you know pretty impressive but certainly not anything like what we've got now and they made an early decision as a group to not attempt carrying oxygen which was surprisingly pretty ready available in canisters then but the risk of the added weight was oftentimes deemed more excessive than, than it was. so yeah
0: yeah that's an interesting call and you think that call worked out well for them
1: well yeah you'll have to read the book <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've seen pictures of people with like um, makeshift gla- glacier glasses where they'd have like a little hole poked through some kind of uh, material maybe leather that goes over their eyes and it's just a tiny little pinpoint they could look through but I imagine yeah they
1: talk in great detail they're like using you know uh, cordage and pieces of you know pieces of uh, film like like camera film to Cover their cover their, some of the porters eyes and
0: oh man, it's pretty,
1: pretty depressing. What what they put the porters through for sure. It also talked about the the dynamics with the porters and and how that whole relationship got cultivated and what their task news responsibilities were. it's pretty pretty
0: interesting. Yeah, I know. Now I want to read it.
1: Yeah, The Last Man on the Mountain. It's The Death of an American Adventurer on K2, and it's written by Jennifer Jordan.
0: That's a kind of book, like, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of outdoors books. Interestingly, most people can't really think of one. Like, most people don't really read books, With a huge part of them is the outdoors. But these kind of mountaineering books, um, I think are super fascinating, and I think those are actually... Um, ones that more people can name, like, what is it? Touching the void. Yeah. Into thin air. Those are some of the ones I think that come to mind to people.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that we, a lot of us have this sort of intrigue for hard effort, you know, first summit sort of like these, like these sort of iconic human, um, achievements, you know what I mean? And, and sort of this like quote unquote conquering of the mountain, like sort of mentality that I don't necessarily agree with entirely, but I think people, it resonates with, um, <clears throat> but I think people, it's one of the best ways to do it. Cause you, you know, you just don't have the, um, a lot of these stories you can't tell any other way. I mean, you didn't have film to tell these stories. So it's pretty amazing to see some of the photography. In fact, Dudley Wolf, um, specifically shot a significant amount of, of still photography out there during this during this attempt and would mail the mail back and ask that it never be opened until he returned pretty impressive yeah so some of the photos in the book are, are really special because of that yeah there's yeah. like there's amazing shots that you're like oh is that an instagram influencer like standing out there on this rock, like they're, they're shot a lot of the same ways that like you see some of these, like,
0: no way. Yeah. And I, mean I assume they're all black and white.
1: Oh yeah. Yep. It's pretty, it's pretty rad.
0: So when the library opens up, I'm definitely going to get myself a copy. So last man on the mountain by Jennifer Jordan. Uh, thanks so much, Jeremy, for sharing that. And uh, I'd like to actually end this podcast on something completely random but i think it's entertaining for people did you come across today that neil diamond um, neil diamond singing
1: <laughs> no i no i haven't
0: okay yeah so just to throw something fun out there into the world it's not really reading related today neil diamond kind of wanted to cheer people up by singing a classic song and i'm going to share that with you
3: hi everybody this is neil diamond and I know we're going through a rough time right now, but I love you. And I think maybe if we sing together, well, we'll just feel a little bit better. Give it a try, okay? Where it began. I can't begin to know it, but then I know.
0: washing hands
3: don't
1: touch
0: me <laughs> i won't touch you <laughs> that's awesome thanks for joining in this edition of trail voices podcast in the next episode we'll have some more pieces from the literary world and i'll do my best to read a short clip from Alda leopold's classic the sand county almanac take care of yourself and i'll see you six feet away on the trail